0: the most sacred symbol in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, is a tree. It's a sprawling, shade-bearing, 80-year-old American elm. And tourists drive from miles around to see this tree. People pose for pictures beneath her. Arborists carefully protect her. She adorns posters and letterhead. Sure, other trees grow larger and fuller and even greener, but not one is equally cherished. The city treasures the tree not because of her appearance, but because of her endurance. She endured the Oklahoma City bombing of April nineteenth, 1995. Some of you might remember that. Timothy McVeigh parked his death-laden truck only yards from this tree. His malice killed 68 people, wounded 850, destroyed the federal building, and buried this tree in rubble. No one expected it to survive. No one, in fact, gave any thought to the dusty branch-stripped tree. But then she began to bud. Sprouts, pressed through damaged bark. Green leaves pushed away the gray suit. Life resurrected from an acre of death. People took notice. The tree modeled the resilience that the victims desired. And so the tree became an object of enduring hope. And so they gave the elm a name, the Survivor Tree. Now throughout time and history, there have been other symbols of hope in other countries, in modern and ancient civilizations. Hope is an integral part of surviving in a fallen and broken world, no matter the culture, no matter the time. Today, we want to talk about hope, but not the uncertain hope of this world. Hope in this world is rooted in uncertainty. I hope I make the grade. I hope I get a good diagnosis. I hope that never happens again. See, the hope of this world is often wrapped up with what we can do or what we will overcome. We will survive. We are strong. It's often expressed in slogans or bracelets or trees. And while this type of hope is useful and even helpful, it is always temporary. And it is absolutely limited because it is what you or me or we can do. But the hope of the scriptures is a different kind of hope it is not rooted in wishful thinking or self-determination there is no uncertainty in biblical hope and so this morning my desire uh, my my hope would be for us to discover that biblical hope is not just a desire or a wish or a longing for something good in the future but rather Biblical hope is a confident expectation for a good future for those who know Jesus Christ. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There is a moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will happen be done because God says so. And I think perhaps no writer in the New Testament captures so fully in one short sentence the hope of this future than does the Apostle Peter right here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Let's look at this together. He says, he writes, blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. And so today, let's explore this hopeful future. And I I want us to notice some key components of biblical hope. And the first one is this, component number one. Biblical hope is living hope, living hope. Notice Peter starts with praise. He's praising God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of what he calls this living hope. You see, Peter has experienced this living hope in his own life. No one felt the death of Jesus more agonizingly than Peter. He boasted that he would never leave or forsake Jesus. And he meant well, but he failed miserably. When the moment came, one question from a servant girl melted away all of his bravado, and he denied Jesus. So in addition to the terrifying collapse of hope that all of the disciples experienced at the death of Jesus, in Peter's case, was added the shame and the disgrace of his own denial. No wonder, no wonder that one of the last views of him in the Gospels is going into the darkness of the night weeping bitterly. And I know something. I know something about us. I know many of your stories. And I know that there are some here today who feel like Peter. Who have experienced the shame and the disgrace of the past. And your hopes have been crushed. Maybe just a few years ago you had glorious dreams of what you'd like to be or what you'd like to do and Now they've all collapsed. Maybe you had a whole set of ideals that you meant to live by, but you failed miserably. You meant to do well, but you ended up wrong. Maybe it was a failed marriage or disappointment in your career or a a broken relationship with a child. Maybe you're, you're in a job that is just beating you up. It seems like there's no way out. Maybe you've experienced the loss of a loved one, and it's devastated you. But what we need to know is that it's exactly, exactly those kinds of moments in which the resurrection is designed to give us hope. I'm sure Peter had that in mind when he talked about this living hope. You know, after the resurrection, Jesus sought Peter out. There's this awesome little picture, this scene by the shore of the the Sea of Galilee where Jesus appears to the disciples and he's on the beach. He's prepared a meal for them. And, And around the fire, Jesus asks Peter three different times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. Three times Peter affirms his his love. Lord, you know that I love you. And three times then, Jesus gives Peter back his ministry. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And from that point on, Peter knew that no situation was hopeless. Because his hope was in the resurrected Lord. I wonder if you know that. Do you know that? I know many of us know that up here factually. But do you know that right here? Do you believe that truth? If Jesus is alive, if he is really conquered death, there is nothing, nothing that you and I can't face. Because he, If he has power over death, then he has power over anything that comes against us. We have a living hope. Secondly, a second component of this hope, this biblical hope, is that it is a real hope. It's a real hope. He really is alive. The resurrection is based on historical fact. Peter says in the text here, the living hope came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is a concrete event in history. I came across this great little illustration. The the Guinness Book of World Records says that the most successful attorney in history is a guy by the name of Sir Lionel Lucku. He's a British lawyer who got his 245th consecutive murder acquittal on January first of thousand nine hundred and eighty five this was an incredible feat that nobody has ever come even close to duplicating he 's like a, a real life Perry Mason. I, I would have to just assume that he 's a very bright man with an uh, acute analytical skills he 'd have to be a world class expert on what constitutes you know, reliable and admissible and persuasive evidence. And he writes about his own spiritual journey. And during this journey, Mr. Lucku took his expertise in law and he combed through all the evidence to see if the resurrection of Jesus would stand the test of legal evidence. And this was his conclusion. Listen to these words. He writes, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof that leaves absolutely no room for doubt. You see, folks, he wasn't talking about a a pretend resurrection that only takes place in our hearts. He wasn't talking about a, a fairy tale written down in a book. He was talking about a real physical resurrection. You know, I've noticed that it's become very popular in the Christian media and in the Christian community at large over the last, I don't know, a couple of decades now to publish books or produce movies about near-death experiences. Now, these kinds of stories impress us. And I'm not here to judge their validity. But here's what I want us to understand. The resurrection of Jesus is something far more impressive and far more certain than any near-death experience that somebody might tell you about. Here's the difference between the resurrection of Jesus and these near-death experiences that we hear about today. First, Jesus was really dead. He really died. When the Roman soldiers pierced his side with a spear, John tells us blood and water flowed out. Any doctor will tell you that that indicates that the circulation of the blood had long since ceased. And then when he was taken down from the cross, his body was wrapped in grave cloths so he couldn't move. His head was wrapped so tightly that it would be impossible for him to breathe. He was laid in a tomb and sealed in with a rock and he was left there for three days. There's no question that he was dead. Not for a few moments. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't a vision. He died. And yet, he returned. The second thing is that these people that talk about visiting heaven, I've noticed one thing in common. They all return to the same life they left. And here's something else. They will all die again someday. But when Jesus came back, he came back the same, but he came back different Thomas was invited to put his hands in the wounds and to to see that it was the same body that was crucified, and yet there was a difference. He had a glorified body. And instead of dying again, Jesus ascended into heaven. You see, he came back, not having merely resisted death or recovered from it. He came back because he conquered death. And this is the guarantee, the guarantee upon which our hope rests as we face our own deaths. We have a living hope. We have a real hope. And number three, the third component of biblical hope is that it is a new world hope. A new world hope. Peter reminds us that our hope is fixed on an inheritance that can never perish. I've had people say things to me like, well, even if there is a heaven, I don't want to go there. It doesn't sound very exciting to me. One guy told me this. He said, I'm not even sure I'd like the people that are there. But Peter calls heaven an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Do you realize in this world, on this earth, everything perishes, spoils, and fades? In fact, it is the destiny of this big rock that we live on. No matter how hard we try to save the planet, no matter how hard we create laws or rules to fix things, this world will continue to perish, to spoil, and to fade away. But for those of us that are in the kingdom of God, we have something far superior to look forward to. Listen to this promise that Paul records in 1 Corinthians 2.9. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. That sounds really good to me. I will take that. You know, the most complete portrait of heaven in the Bible is found in the book of Revelation in chapters 21 and 22. If you want to know about heaven, spend some time pouring through those chapters. And in them, the apostle John kind of pulls back the curtain and he stretches the, the limits of human language to describe what heaven is like. And he tells us a number of things. He tells us that heaven is a real place it's not some esoteric, undefined existence where we float around on clouds strumming harps. It's not what heaven is about at all. John describes something material. Listen to these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. One commentator I read made this statement. He said, uh, the Christian faith is the most materialistic of all faiths because our vision of the future is earthy. God made us for earth and he'll fulfill that original intent by placing us on a new earth. You see, our destiny is not to go to heaven. Our destiny is for heaven to come down. Our vision of the future is not otherworldly. It is newworldly. We will not merely be freed from our bodies, We will receive new bodies. I don't know. Maybe something like the body Jesus had when he was resurrected. I don't know. But it's awesome to think about. Heaven is also described as a holy place. The thing that dominates John's description of heaven is the presence of God. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now for a Jewish man like John, the temple was everything. It was the place where God dwelt. And so for him to to come to understand that there's no temple, that's just unfathomable. It's unthinkable. If there's no temple, where does God live? And so in this vision that John receives, what he's really trying to help us understand is that God is everywhere. The whole city is the temple. God's dwelling place is no longer a place, a room, in a building, in a city but it is the city itself. And then even better, later in the chapter, John says, they will see his face. Talking about God. They will see his face. Can that really be? You know, all through scripture, it talks about how no one can see the face of God and live, but here in this very real place that John is describing that we call heaven, we will see the face of God. Nothing can satisfy more than that. This new world that we are promised is a safe place. You know, in this life, we we live with just a certain amount of uncertainty, a certain amount of fear. Anything can happen to us. The world is full of terrible things. School buses crash full of children. Airplanes disappear, mass shootings, war, injustice, diseases that kill. On and on the list could go. But John, he says that in heaven, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. Why is that? Because there will be no more sin or crime or smog or oil spills or sickness or disease. No more betrayal. No more bickering over meaningless things. Think of all the folks that will be out of work when we get to heaven. No more exterminators or counselors or insurance adjusters or doctors or mechanics or policemen or health inspectors. Not even any more preachers. We'll all be out of work because we have a living hope and it's a real hope and it is a new world hope. Fourth component of biblical hope. It is a secure hope. A secure hope. You know know what's great? Peter says that this inheritance this promise to God's children, he says it is reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved. It sounds like God is just waiting to give us this amazing inheritance which he's been preparing since the beginning of time. I, uh, yesterday, Sue and I were, were traveling south and we stopped for, for lunch in Roseburg, in downtown Roseburg. And just so happened when we came out of the restaurant, there's a car show going on. And the block that we were on was apparently the Corvette block. Because this just rows, two, three, four rows of these beautiful, beautiful machines. And uh, it reminded me of this story. And so I had to just fit this in today. Uh, a story about a guy, ever since he was a little boy, his parents had promised to give him a beautiful car to drive when he turned 16. So he looked forward, he so looked forward to parking it in the family's barn where it would stay warm and dry. But he knew that first his dad would have to get rid of that old piece of junk that was sitting in the corner of the barn, covered up with a tarp. He couldn't wait for his dad to haul it off to the dump to make way for his dream car. When would that day come? When would that new car arrive? When would his dad get rid of that heap? And then one evening in the early summer, he heard strange sounds coming from the barn. It sounded like an engine. What was going on? And so he peered into the darkness, and he noticed that there was a light on out in the barn. And so he walked into the warm night air down the dirt path, and as he approached the barn doors, they were open, and he could see that old tarp rolled up, leaning against the barn door. And he excitedly thought, Dad is finally getting rid of that old piece of junk. Yes! And then he came around the corner and he looked into the barn and he saw one of the most incredible sports cars in automotive history. It was a Corvette. Not just any Corvette. It was the coveted, beautiful, powerful 1963 Corvette 327 V8 with a split window and aluminum wheels painted candy apple red. I saw one yesterday. <laughs> oh. That was the car underneath the tarp all those years, and he stood there stunned. It was always there, just waiting for him to turn 16, and his father looked up, and with a broad smile, he said, Come on, son, let's go for a ride. That's a great story. It's a story. It's all it is, a story. But what I want us to understand is that in the same way, this coveted, beautiful, powerful inheritance that God has for us is reserved in heaven for you. It's there now. And someday, the Lord himself will roll up the tarp and let you see it in all its glory. You see, no one can take away our hope. Our confident expectation of what God has reserved for his children. Our hope is alive. And it's real and it's secure. And then finally, this fifth component, we have a born-again hope. A born-again hope. How do we obtain this living hope? If what I've said is even close to true that's the most important question in the world and here's peter's answer from our text today according to his great mercy he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead born again what does that mean how does that happen Well, it simply means that there comes a time when in our emptiness or in our loneliness or our brokenness, our despair, our guilt, our shame, you fill in the blank. In that time, we respond to the invitation of Jesus to enter into our lives. We put our trust in him as our savior. The Apostle John reminds us in chapter 1 of his gospel, listen to these words, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we receive Jesus, we're spiritually reborn, and he begins to change us, to transform us. And that doesn't happen because we're good. And it doesn't happen because we try really, really, really hard to change our ways. You see, none of us are good enough. We all fall short. So this only becomes true for us in his great mercy. Our born-again experience begins as we come to realize that Jesus is our only hope, and that hope is only possible because of his death and his burial and his resurrection. Later in this very letter, in chapter 3, Peter gives us a picture of, of how this born-again experience comes to its culmination at our baptism as we say yes to Jesus and we share in the death and the burial and the resurrection. Listen to just uh, some of the words at the end of chapter 3. He writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. That's what Jesus has done for us. And so we receive that when we're baptized. In verse 21 he says, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you, not, not the removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal, an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. See, God loves you. He loves you so much. And he cares about each one of us. And that's why he sent his son to die in our place. And he wants to spend eternity with each of us in this place that we've been describing. But we can't earn this new birth any more than we earned our original physical birth. It is a gift, and we must receive it by saying yes to Jesus. Just a a few months ago, in April of this year, it was reported in the Tulsa World newspaper, the famed 100-year-old survivor tree that remains standing after the deadly Oklahoma City bombing has been cloned. And a seed with its identical genetic makeup planted to assure that it will live on forever. Science and technology helped officials create this clone. The idea came from former Mayor Mick Cornett, who brought up the concept back in 2010. Officials at the Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum supported the concept and helped see it through. I I read that article. I went on to read it. It was talking about how they were sending little saplings and seedlings of this tree really all over the world for for cities and communities to plant these trees to represent hope and endurance. That's cool. Kind of cool to think about that. But here's what came to my mind when I read that. Folks, we can't clone hope. We can't clone hope. Despite their greatest efforts, that Oklahoma survivor tree and all of its clones will one day perish, spoil, and fade. And with it, the worldly hopes attach to that symbol. But if we know Jesus... We can have confident expectation, a real and living hope of God's preferred future reserved for each one of us who choose to receive it. Where is your hope? It's a good question to ask. Where is my hope? Is it in an idea? Is my hope in a philosophy? Is my hope in a monument? Is my hope in a political party or a government? Is your hope in yourself? Is your hope in another person? Is your hope in your family? All of these and many more will perish, spoil, and fade away. And so today, may we put our hope fully, completely in the God of hope and in his son, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me?